Oh man, this is such a good conversation. Y'all are in for a treat. What's up, y'all? I'm John Lawrence, and this is Anesthesia Guidebook, episode 104, at-home cardiorespiratory events following ambulatory surgery with Dr. Chuck Biddle. Chuck Biddle is a professor emeritus of anesthesiology at Virginia Commonwealth University and served as the editor-in-chief of the AANA Journal for 35 years. His anesthesia education and master's degree are from Old Dominion University, and he completed his PhD in epidemiology at the University of Missouri. Chuck is one of my favorite people in the world of anesthesiology. He's one of those folks who have put the time in over decades to develop a true, deep mastery of their profession, while at the same time bringing with them a level of authenticity, integrity, and humility that garners true respect. He's a guide. He's helped countless physician and nurse anesthesiology trainees develop and gain a love of the work that we do. And one of the central focuses of his career has been fervently working to understand the things that put our patients at risk and develop research and insights for practice to advance patient safety, which brings us to the show. In this episode, Dr. Biddle turns our attention to what happens to patients after they go home from day surgery. We talk about a study his team did at VCU where they sent patients home with a pulse oximeter monitor and tracked their course for 48 hours following day surgery. We talk about how novel of an idea this is in that very few studies have actually looked at what happens to patients following ambulatory surgery and that a certain segment of these patients, those who have obstructive sleep apnea, are at particular risk for devastating post-operative complications. Chuck points to Jonathan Binimoff's 2016 article in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia titled, Mismanagement of Patients with Obstructive Sleep Apnea May Result in Finding These Patients Dead in Bed. Dr. Binimoff is a renowned physician anesthesiologist and an expert on airway management and pulmonary physiology and a professor of anesthesiology at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. In fact, over the 15 years prior to the publication of this article in 2016, Dr. Binimoff served as an expert witness in litigation cases, and he testified on 12 cases of OSA patients who had died within 48 hours of surgery. In the article, he unpacks each of those cases and provides the following prototypical dead-in-bed OSA patient, quote, a 58-year-old continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP-compliant male with a body mass index of 40, with PSG-proven severe OSA undergoes orthopedic upper airway or abdominal surgery under general anesthesia. The patient has an uncomplicated stay in the post-anesthesia care unit until discharged to an unmonitored bed without CPAP or oxygen. After receiving a small and within standard of care doses of narcotics for pain at 11 hours, the patient is found dead in bed. Advanced cardiac life support is either not attempted or fails to return the patient to their baseline state of life, end quote. So this episode with Dr. Biddle is one of those discussions that makes you see the work you do in a whole new light. And it gives you a renewed sense of ownership over making sure that you and your colleagues are doing the right thing for your patients. This show is coming out on January 28th in 2024. It was originally recorded at VCU's audio studio with a tabletop microphone back in the summer of 2017. 
I apologize that the audio is a little hazy at times, but the power of Dr. Biddle's research and passion for this topic are still very much relevant to providers today. And so with that, let's get to the show. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. So we're going to start with in-home cardiorespiratory events after discharge from same-day surgery. And you've done some primary research on this topic. So tell us about your motivation for looking at this topic as an area of research. So this goes way back. uh, And those of uh, those listeners who may be of... uh, uh, out from their training program 20 years or more, as, as I am, when outpatient surgery, we used to call it outpatient surgery now, of course, it's ambulatory surgery, but uh, when it got started, the, the, the routine way that we followed patients postoperatively, which, which still occurs in most circumstances, is we'd, we'd give them a call by phone. And I'll never forget a uh, Navy nurse anesthetist who was a mentor of mine way back when said to me, uh, Chuck, if you call the patient postoperatively and they don't answer the phone, it's one of three things. They're either in the bathroom, they are at the mall, or they are dead. Wow. And I can't tell you the amount of traction that that has exerted on my thinking in those intervening 20 plus years. And if you go to the literature, you will find great difficulty in finding any systematic research that looks at what happens to patients postoperatively. In fact, if you go back uh, much more than, if you go back any further than, say, about 10 years, and you look in an anesthesia textbook, for instance, you will not find uh, obstructive sleep apnea even mentioned. It's like we discovered obstructive sleep apnea in anesthesiology 10 years ago. And now, of course, it's a fairly common part of the preoperative assessment doing something like a stop bang or you know a Berlin questionnaire or any number of other obstructive sleep apnea inventories assessment scales and I started to think about especially in the wake of the opiate epidemic that we are seeing in the United States what happens when a perfect storm occurs in a patient's life that is they have obstructive sleep apnea, they're using opiates, they're treating their pain, they may be using other drugs and alcohol in the, in, in the home, they may have diabetes, etc. What sort of events occur postoperatively? So over the last um, couple of years, and we've, we have published this work in, uh, in infectious disease and epidemiology journals, what we have decided to do is to study people in the first 48 hours after they go home. And the way that we're doing this is we're outfitting them with a portable pulse oximeter, the thing's about the size and weight of a large wristwatch. They can wear this thing continuously, and we can track um, their hemoglobin saturation with oxygen for 42 to 72 hours. And they also keep a journal. So they're they're journaling things like uh, how much pain they're experiencing, uh, what their level of activity is, uh, we have a visual analog scale in there that they can use. Uh, we, we ask them to record uh, how they're treating their pain, whether it's with opiates or a non-steroidal or ice or ignoring it. And what we've done is we've, we've created a database of folks 
um, and what happens to them postoperatively. And then using some relatively simple statistical procedures uh, like logistic regression uh, and uh, linear regression, we can then correlate different things that are going on in their lives with some of these outcomes that we're observing. And what we're finding, uh, and it makes me think of an editorial that uh, Jonathan Benumoff wrote in the Canadian Journal about a year and a half ago that he called the elephant in the room, patients found dead in bed. And that really resonated with me because what we found in our study is that a large number of people, especially those with stop bank scores in excess of, of five, five, six, seven, or eight, have an unbelievable number of desaturation events in an eight-hour sleep period, and that some of these desaturation events uh, occur for a very long uh, period of time, and some of them are extraordinarily low. So it's, 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 it's concerning. And I think what this does is it helps us to identify what some of the risk factors might be and how we might uh, be able to prevent or offer some um, patient-centered care in maybe helping to prevent some of these things from happening. So we haven't had a particularly catastrophic event, but I'll tell you some of the data that we've seen is really quite frightening. Wow. And so some of that research specifically is in an article that we'll put in the show notes, uh, predictors of at-home arterial oxygen desaturation events in ambulatory surgical patients. So in that, you use this pulse oximeter. So they, the patients would wear this pulse ox continuously for 48 hours? 48 hours, hours. Right? from the so moment a, they left the hospital. A, a wrist stop pulse ox with the, the finger probe. So these are people that had uh, surgery yeah. and anesthesia discharged from an ambulatory surgical center. Uh, in fact, the one that that is right here at my medical center. And then we track them for the first 48 hours. And then uh, using a little inducement, we have a uh, $25 Visa card that we give them. Uh, we ask them to drop it in a prepaid, pre-addressed uh, mailer. They drop the thing and their journal in this envelope. It comes back to me. I download it. It enters it, and it gets entered into the database. And so, what were some of the what were some of the risk factors of at-home respiratory events that you found? Uh, we, we found a number of them. Uh, the most compelling uh, was a history of obstructive sleep apnea identified preoperatively by a, uh, a stop bank score in excess of uh, four, five, or six. And most literature suggests that if you have a stop bank score in excess of three, uh, you're at significant risk for obstructive sleep apnea. We elevated that a little bit. And one of the things that we're also looking at in the study, in fact, we're looking at that kind of critically right now, is we have a fairly significant database. It has never made sense to me as a clinician uh, just set aside my researcher hat for a moment, but as a clinician, that we would weight something like gender in the same way that we would weight observed apnea. That makes yeah. no sense to me. So we are now interrogating our database, and we're adding to this database, by the way, all the time because I have a, a larger study going on right now, some distance from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and that data will be forthcoming probably in the next uh, 12 months or so. But we're beginning to question uh, the weight that is uh, distributed across the stop bang and looking if there are certain metrics, components of the stop bang that should be weighted differently. And again, this is opinion right now, but we'd like to bring some evidence to that view. And, and that's one, that's part of the systematic research that, that I'm in, involved in now. Yeah. And so we'll put, we'll put the articles in the show notes, but just to unpack that a little bit, the stop bank score that we're talking about, 
covers things like it's it's an acronym. So, but it covers th- things like snoring, tired is the T. Do you feel tired? Daytime, or sleepy? daytime fatigue. Observed apnea. Yeah. So this would be a family member or a bedmate that observes someone having periods of apnea. Yeah. So STOP, the P is pressure for blood pressure if, if they have high blood pressure. yeah. And then bang would be body mass index over 35. Yeah. Age over than 50 is the A. N is neck circumference over than 16 inches, greater than 16 inches. And then sex, are they male? Yeah. And so out of these criteria, your data has shown that there are some that are yes. weightier than others. It's not just the overall score, but in fact, some of them are, are right. weighed heavier than others in terms of risk factors for negative respiratory events. Yeah, in fact, in, interesting, of course, uh, BMI turned out to be, uh, in our linear regression uh, model, BMI proved to be particularly uh, predictive. Uh, interesting enough, uh, age turned out to be uh, predictive. And, you know, it just makes sense that if someone is observing someone to be apneic, that was a major predictor of uh, a desaturation event. So, again, it makes no sense to us that just because you may be hypertensive or not, uh, in fact, if you're a well-controlled hypertensive, and we all take care of patients every day who are well-controlled hypertensives, should you be dinged the same value for well-controlled hypertension as you would be for observed apnea? makes no sense. Right. Now, again, that's conjecture and just opinion at this point in time. We're trying to apply some illumination some research, systematic illumination to that so that we can make a case for that instead of just saying, well, we think, we want to say, we believe that we have valid and reliable reasons for offering a different weighting for the metrics associated with stop bang. Yeah. And now in your observation of patients following ambulatory surgery, you've been able to catch hundreds, if not thousands of desaturation events, oh, yeah. but you've not seen significant morbidity or mortality in your subjects. Is that correct? No, uh, not to this point. Now, right. it, it depends on what you mean by that because we're not, we're not measuring certain physiological variables. For instance, one of the things that really concerns me as I was looking at some of the individual patient data was I was wondering what was happening in the pulmonary vasculature of these patients because we all know uh, that if you have a significant uh, period of obstructive sleep apnea, your pulmonary artery pressure can rise. You can have significant pulmonary hypertension. Now, in this study, we did not measure the incidence of dysrhythmia. We did not measure, uh, you know, specific outcomes other than these, other than the rate of uh, hypoxemia. So that is why we are now moving to our second study, a much larger study of uh, a more diverse population of uh, surgical patients where we are going to be looking at cardiac telemetry and using actinography, you know, how much, how much sleep these patients are, are, are engaging in. Yeah. Because um, our concern, of course, is that the more information that we have, the better we can plan an anesthetic and advise patients on how to conduct themselves in the post-operative period once they go home. Right. And I want to get to that in just a moment. You're also looking at these journals that people write about their yes. post-operative experience. So what, what kind of information has that brought to your attention? It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, a lot of patients, um, many patients, and I think, again, to the clinician who, who may be listening to this, this is going to come as no surprise, over-medicate themselves with opiates. 
And I can tell you that um, a guy that was very inspirational in my career, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, some years at uh, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in, in Hanover, in, excuse me, in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And I came across a young surgeon at that time. His name is Dr. Richard Barth. And Dr. Barth is now the chairman of surgery at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And Dr. Barth just published an interesting paper where they educated their surgeons about the way that they prescribed opiates in the post-operative period. And in his pilot study, he found that there was a market over-prescription of opiates to surgical patients. Not only was, was some of this research driven by um, concerns about the opiate epidemic that's occurring in the United States today, but just this idea that we may be putting patients at increased risk for not only um, you know, morbidity, possibly mortality, but just issues associated with reliance on opiates once that pain is gone. So his work has been inspirational to me too, because it's very clear to me that if we know what's going on in patients at home, and I believe, uh, I'm sure that you know a, a, re, a listener out there may find uh, that I'm incorrect in what I'm about to say, but I believe that our study may be the first, possibly one of, one of the few, I, I, I guess I, I will hedge, that have looked at what actually happens specifically to patients in their homes right. once they are discharged. I know of no other anesthesia work that has looked carefully at this. Now, not only do we have a metric of certain outcomes like hypoxemia, but we have a journal that has informed us about how patients care for themselves postoperatively. And what I found very interesting was that how often patients might medicate themselves with alcohol, for instance. Hmm. Now, that's something I had thought about before as a clinician, but I'd never seen any evidence of it. Right. I was also surprised at the amount of opiates that a patient might take postoperatively uh, when there were other modalities that might be available, such as nonsteroidals or acetaminophen, and you know, for some even maybe you know meditation or. In some, even exercise. Some people use exercise. Now, when I'm talking about exercise, I'm not talking about necessarily swimming or jogging. I'm talking about maybe like walking, you know, movement. Also, there's evidence that uh, in the literature that things like uh, music therapy, you know, meditation, you know, distraction techniques, but the over-reliance of opiates right. and how those opiates were associated with these saturation events was truly frightening to me as a clinician. And it put me on notice that um, we need to do more in terms of not only educating patients about how to care for themselves, but educating practitioners about how they can educate their patients. So there's a whole lot of things that are, are brewing in my head uh, and, and where to go with this, but I need more data. And that's why we're now moving the study to a, a larger patient population at a distant site to make sure this isn't just a phenomenon that's here in Richmond, Virginia, right. at Virginia Commonwealth University. That's very fascinating. I'm curious to know, were there metrics to this journal? Were there 
were there sort of an, an outline for things that people needed to fill out? And, yes. And what other information did you yeah. did you garner from them? What, what did they say about their experiences postoperatively that was surprising? So, so some of your listeners may be familiar with the concept of a structured interview. And the idea of a structured interview is you sit down with something, you have prefab uh, questions uh, that have been carefully thought out and systematically derived so that you can get at the essence of the phenomena that you're interested in. And our journal uh, went through many different iterations because, excuse me, before we actually took it to the patient's uh, bedside. So we have in there, for instance, over the course of the 48 hours of data collection, and, and, and I will say that we only collected data over the first 48 hours. So after 48 hours, we have no idea. There is some evidence that um, things like sleep disturbances and all may peak on the third day. Now, if that's the case, we miss that entirely. Right. So your listeners, sh- your listeners should be aware that we only look at the first 48 hours. But in our journal, we had uh, day one uh, for the first 24 hours, day two for the second 24 hours. And at various times, we had visual analog scales. We asked patients how they had been sleeping. We asked people um, what sort of nutrition that they were doing. We asked people how they were treating their pain. So the journals were highly structured. This wasn't just an open-ended blank journal. Of course. Highly structured, highly systematic, so that we could capture the metrics that we were most interested in. How has looking at this and coming to the revelation that of the patient experience postoperatively, how has that changed your interactions with patients in ambulatory surgery? And clearly, then, what would you say to practicing CRNAs in terms of what their recommendations should be to patients after you've found this data? Well, it has, uh, and, and the readers, uh, excuse me, the listeners uh, should also understand that I'm only in the operating room now about 20% of the time. So my exposure to patients is not as great as it has been in the past. But I can tell you that it has significantly influenced uh, the interactions that I do have. It has even more significantly or more aggressively changed my uh, interactions with the students and other practitioners that I work with. For instance, I tell them the, I stress to them the importance of that pre-anesthetic assessment and this is not something that should just be uh, done in a very perfunctory manner. Uh, whether you're assessing the airway or a patient's cardiovascular system uh, or your you know, pulmonary system, the idea of assessing a patient for risk factors for postoperative hypoxemia and at the top of the list I would put things like previous use or current use of opiates, uh, pain tolerance, and stop bang. Uh, those are essential elements of the of the preoperative uh, assessment, and they should not be uh, cavalierly or in a perfunctory manner uh, assessed. Those are crucially important to the po- to the postoperative course of the patient. So I think education is where it's at, and uh, I'm doing my best to do that. Now, some would argue that well, Biddle, you know, you're advocating something that is. Uh, only now beginning to be discussed, but again, uh, one of the most powerful pieces that I have read, and your readers um, can search for it in the Canadian literature, and that is Jonathan Benyamoff's um, editorial about patients found dead in bed. And, and another quote that you provide was in the Journal of Patient Safety from him was the first step to fixing a problem is identifying the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I take you back again to those, that Navy nurse anesthetist many, many years ago who I still hold in the highest esteem. Um, 
those words resonate with me to this day. And um, I think we are only now, and when I say we, I don't mean just here at VCU. There are a number of people that are looking at this uh, phenomenon, this idea of illuminating terrain that previously has been quite darkened. This idea of what happens to patients in their homes after anesthesia. We're beginning to look systematically at this, and uh, I think, you know, it's long overdue. So there's an element of risk in the post-operative phase concerning opiate prescriptions in their use. What implications does this information have for the type of anesthetic, the things that happen in the interoperative phase? I know there's things as significant as regional anesthesia blocks and some magic therapy that we can do on the day of surgery, but what kinds of anesthetic choices uh, should clinicians be thinking about in terms of this? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously every anesthetic that's delivered, uh, in my opinion, and I I think an increasingly large number of practitioners believe that, you know, we are in the age of uh, patient-centered care, you know, patient-centric care, that uh, we should marshal evidence-based decision evidence-based decisions to uh, the individual patient and that we should get away from, uh, you know, cookie-cutter, recipe-driven care of, of, of patients. I would look at Dr. Barr's paper where they effectively reduce the amount of opiates prescription to patients without any criticism from the patients by over 50%. Now, think about that. By over 50%, they reduce opiate prescription in these patients having general surgery. Educating patients is important. Uh, Patient-centered care driven by the idea that uh, we are putting some patients at risk by the anesthetic that we deliver and the care that we deliver. So I think increasingly we're thinking about, especially in this era of ERAS, you know, enhanced recovery after surgery, that started with, uh, you know, colorectal surgery performed in Europe and now has penetrated virtually the entirety of the United States for many other surgeries, everything from hernia repair to breast cancer surgery uh, to tonsillectomy to et cetera, et cetera. We're in an age now where goal-directed therapy, ERAS-driven protocols are arguing that we should do less and in the same way achieve more by maybe steering away from so much reliance on opiates mm-hmm. and using multimodal techniques. And we have many of those that are available to us. And you mentioned, uh, you know, peripheral nerve blocks as an example, judicious use of uh, local anesthesia at the wound site right. preemptively and intraoperatively and postoperatively, the use of um, drugs like ibuprofen, which is not only a very good analgesic, but has extraordinary anti-inflammatory properties, the use of acetaminophen, all kinds of modalities, and not so much reliance on on prescribing opiates, which is what I grew up with. I mean, for the first right. 20 years of my career, you know, we were grounded in opiate prescription for pain relief. And what I have seen has been an explosion of research that has been performed not only by anesthesiologists but also by nurse anesthetists and, and publications that uh, are supporting this, the use of doing multimodal techniques instead of so much reliance on opiates. And I think it's going to make a huge dent in this problem that we're seeing with uh, the opiate yeah. uh, epidemic. And specifically, to go back, you mentioned that uh, in Dr. Barth's study, they reduced opiate use by 50%. They did but in was that, that study. Was that through education? Was that through multimodal therapy? It was a combination. What they did is Dr. Barth 
shared the pilot data with surgeons, and it was kind of an eye-opening for them. It was interesting how they yeah. were. And there have been other publications, by the way, that I'm not sure that I can cite. I, I've seen abstracts from Dr. Barth's uh, group at Dartmouth that have showed that this has had a sustained effect. It's, it's, it's a bimodal phenomenon, or I should say it, it has to target two populations. It has to target the prescriber, i.e. the surgeon or the anesthesiologist, or the nurse anesthetist, or the nurse practitioner, and it has to target the patient and the patient's family. So when you do aggressive education and you are illuminating the problem for the patient and for the provider, it's clear that um, outcomes are improved. And Dr. Barth's work has, has revealed this. That's great. I believe I said the American Journal of Surgery, and I'm, I'm and I will uh, say that I may be incorrect there. I think it's the American uh, Journal, the American College of Surgeons Journal. But it's okay. but it's a 1917. Excuse me, it's a 2017 publication, <laughs> and you can you can you can Google Dr. Barth, B A R T H, Richard Barth. Sure, and we'll, and, and we'll we'll hunt down the article okay. and just put it right up on the website. There we of the go. There we so, go. So it'd be there. Uh, well, this is certainly a fascinating topic. I look forward to the, the study that you're conducting now and, and having more data and, and also tying in some of the other postoperative outcomes like uh, the analysis of telemetry and some of the other things that you're yeah, looking at. We're very excited about it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're really going to shed some, um, some much-needed light on this area. That's great. Anything else you'd like to say in terms of uh, mitigating the risk of post-op respiratory and cardiac events? One thing I would like to say, uh, something that you just made me think of it, um, I'm, going, I'm not going out on a limb here when I say this. There is a rich uh, database and a rich research and clinical uh, base that is foundational to what I'm about to say. Codeine should not be prescribed in children. Of course. Uh, we now know, uh, and I hope this gains traction <laughs> with your listener, that there are some children, uh, some adults, who are hypermetabolizers of codeine. And uh, codeine is a prodrug. It's hydrolyzed to morphine. And uh, there are some patients, and the pediatric patient is particularly at risk for morphine toxicity and respiratory failure. And there are a number of tragic events that have occurred. And when I say tragic, I mean um, I mean horrible uh, outcomes in children who have received codeine, often in um, pain management for their uh, adenotonsillectomy. Hmm. So uh, I would advise uh, or, or ask your, your listeners to be very thoughtful about the use of codeine, in, uh, especially in children, and that's sending great. them home. So that's how I would like to leave this, that uh, everything that we do, as I tell students, everything that we do is a two-edged sword. And uh, we need to be very, very thoughtful about uh, about the decisions that we make. That's great. Well, Chuck Biddle, thank you so much. Hey, for you're most welcome. That you're most welcome. Thank you, John. What up, y'all? I wanted to drop a reminder that if you're a CRNA looking for a great team to invest yourself in your career in, check us out at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. While the clinical opportunities would challenge you and the location is one of the best, our people and sense of community are truly what set us apart. Reach out if you want to learn more.